Hello, I'm Dr. Paul Sagar, lecturer in political theory at King's College London. Today I'm talking to Dr. Lucia Rubinelli, who is fellow in the history of political thought at Robinson College, Cambridge. We'll be discussing her book, Constituent Power, A History, which has just been published with Cambridge University Press. Hi, Lucia. Hello. Great. Could you give us just a sense of the main arguments of the book? Yes. So as the title suggests, um, the book wants to be a possible way of telling the history of the language of constituent power. Now, the reason why I say the language and not the idea is actually gets to the core of the argument of the book. And this is because I've decided not to start by giving a definition of the idea of constituent power and then tracing it backwards in history. Uh, but on the contrary, um, what I do in the book is I look at how the language, so the very words constituent power, have been used in history. Uh, and then anytime I see um, thinkers or theorists or even politicians using the word constituent power, I try to dig up what, what they mean by it. So, in other words, the book reconstructs a history of the, the different meanings that have been associated to the language of constituent power. So, in other words, it's not a genealogy. There's no one consistent meaning that I trace back in history. But on the contrary, I, I reconstruct the, the, again, the variety of meanings associated to this language. And... Um, and what, what comes out of this history is that the language of constituent power is just one other way of thinking about the very foundation of the modern state and of democratic states, meaning the idea according to which power belongs to the people. So again, the book is a way of thinking through the language of constituent power, how have we been making sense of the principle according to which power belongs to the people. And the history is a history that starts with the first uses of the words constituent power, which probably surprisingly to some, uh, relatively recent. So the first uh, consistent use of the language of pouvoir constituant uh, is introduced by CAS during the French Revolution. So it's really 1788, 1789, um, the first time you really see the words come into play. And then um, I proceed in five phases um, through to the 1960s. Cool. So as you just said there, this, uh, the scope of this book is, is really, really big. You go from Sears right through to Arendt. Um, so could you give us a sense of the structure of the book itself in a sort of chapter-by-chapter -chapter breakdown? Yes, so um, the, the book is structured in five chapters that correspond to, the five, to five key moments in the history of the language of constituent power. So each chapter has been selected because it corresponds to one of the main theorizations and uses of this idea in um, European politics. And also, I should say, the focus is only um, on France, Germany and Italy. Um, so, I, for example, I don't look at debates on constituent power in the US, um, even though, of course, they, they, they do come in into the discussion uh, in some stages, in some points of the story, but they're not prominent. So uh, the, five, the five moments correspond to the first, so the one I just mentioned, so the, the theory of constituent power um, uh, offered by the ABCAS during the French Revolution. Uh, the second is a series of theorization of constituent power advanced by a series of jurists and politicians in France across the 19th century, and especially around 19, uh, 1830 and 18, 1848. So these are the, 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 the key moments I look at in the second chapter. 
The third chapter looks at Carl Schmitt, uh, who probably is the best known theorist of constituent power. Uh, he mostly writes about it during the Weimar Republic, so it's mostly 1920s up until 1933. Uh, and here there's, um, well, I, maybe I'll come back to this, but there's a lot to be said about uh, the connection between uh, Schmidt, his uses of constituent power and the justification and legitimation of national socialism. The fourth chapter is looks at how constitutional theorists active in the immediate aftermath of World War II use constituent power to think about democracy and the foundations of democracy in post-war uh, Europe and especially Germany, France and Italy. And then the last chapter looks at, a, again, a similar point in time, so the 1960s and especially um, Arendt's book on revolution, where she offers... Um, a reinterpretation of all the previous moments I've been discussing. And this reinterpretation, I argue in the book, is particularly important because it fits into what contemporary theorists are doing and saying about constituent power. So one way of thinking about these five moments, really, is that they are five key moments in the history. These are the five moments in which new theories of constituent power appear, in which the language of constituent power acquires a new meaning. But also they all build upon each other. So they could also be read as an intellectual history of CES in many ways. Because again, the first moment is CES, but then the second becomes uh, 19th century jurists reading CES and applying him to the Second Republic in France, for example. The third moment, Schmidt, is Schmidt reading these jurists who read CES and himself going back to CES and applying him to Weimar Germany. The fourth moment is this German, it, it's one German uh, theorist called Bockenförde, an Italian called Mortati and the French called Vedel. They, they are all constitutional lawyers and theorists of some importance in their countries, dealing with Schmidt and his theory of constituent power and trying to go back to say yes, to make sense, to, to offer a new way of thinking about constituent power that doesn't have the pitfalls of Schmidt. And then Arendt does again the same uh, by completely... Uh, by reading all of these people, but then offering a completely different interpretation of both the language of constituent power and her own um, version of the history, the intellectual history of this idea. So it's, again, five moments, but also a cumulative history of interpretations and misinterpretations of CES and his first uh, theorization of constituent power. Thanks. So what led you to write this book? How did you get interested in this question of constituent power and how it changed over time? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and I'm, I'm afraid I don't have a very clear-cut answer, because as, I guess as often happens with research projects, and especially your first one, this, this is a book that comes out of my PhD. Um, so it somehow happened over time. It was not one um, striking moment when I realized that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but I guess what interest... So I've, I had been interested in constitutional law and constitutional theory for quite some time. Um, and differently, poss possibly this is different from political theory, but in constitutional theory, really, constituent power is considered to be the foundation of the very legitimacy of a constitution. So it's, it has a very important role to play in the, in the structure of the apparatus of constitutional theory as a discipline uh, and as a field of political and legal um, action and, and uh, contestation. So... Um, I, I was puzzled by the use of this idea, and especially I was puzzled by the fact that theorists were completely different. So right-wing theorists, in the same way as Antonio Negri, so radical left, 
they all appeal to this idea of constituent power and use it in completely different ways to offer different understandings of what the state should look like or if the state should exist at all. Um, so somehow it all started as an effort to try and make sense of why this idea is so, has so many meanings and why this idea is used to um, play so many different roles in politics. Why can it be used to advance a almost um, an, 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 an almost anarchic argument against the state, as Negri did, or an argument that could play into the hands of national socialism, as Schmidt did. Um, so again, it was an attempt to try and make sense of, um, from a historical point of view, of what was going on there. And then what I found surprising when doing this project, at first it was very puzzling, but then I made it the object of my research, is that depending on the theories you were reading, you would have completely different histories of this idea. So if it's somebody who defends radical democracy, the idea would start with uh, Aristotle and then would go would be developed by Machiavelli. Let alone, never mind the fact that neither Machiavelli nor Aristotle ever mentioned the word constituent power. But there is this sense of, you know, depending on what you want to do with the idea, you have a different genealogy for the idea. Um, and so what I was interested in is, was to try and find out also what is the history of this idea? Uh, why, is it, why does it seem to be so um, elastic to different uh, interpretations and different histories? So again, the problem when I was doing, when I started working on this was how do I orient myself in all of this? How, how, how am I gonna make sense of all of this? Uh, especially of all these dif different histories. And then I, re I realized that the interesting question was precisely why do people have so, so many different understandings of the idea? Why people have different histories of the idea? And that became the, yeah, the main question behind the book. Great. You, you've actually touched on this uh, in, in your answer there, but was there anything else that you found particularly interesting or surprising when you conducted this research? Is there anything that you discovered that you, you didn't expect to discover when you started out? Yes. Yeah, so... Um, one key thing, which actually became the other, the other big argument of the, the book behind, besides the history, um, is that if you read, as I guess one normally does when it starts working on a new project, if you read contemporary literature on constituent power, very often you're led to think that constituent power is the same as sovereignty. So the, the two concepts go together. Uh, then, you know, it might be that somebody, like, for example, um, Calivas, uh, who's at um, the new school in New York, he would say, well, constituent power is the right version of sovereignty, is popular sovereignty against national sovereignty. But really, this idea of constituent power in contemporary literature is always associated to the right version of sovereignty. Um, so again, one gets a sense that the two ideas are co-substantial, that they, they are synonyms, that they make sense only as a pair. But then, if you look at the history, actually, what turns out is that that's absolutely not the case. And that, on the contrary, starting from CES, the idea of constituent power has always been mobilized in order to offer a way of thinking about the foundation of the state, a way of thinking about popular power that was an alternative to contemporary understandings of sovereignty. So, just to give a clear example, CES um, introduced the idea of constituent power to offer an alternative to both the idea of popular sovereignty that was associated to Jacobin radical democracy, which CS did not like, 
or the idea of national sovereignty, which was associated to the monarchists' idea of basically parliamentary sovereignty uh, or sovereignty of the representatives of the nation as represented in the assembly. And CS didn't like that either because he thought that was too skewed to an elitist version of popular power. And so constituent power really is introduced by CS as a way of cutting through this dichotomy and saying, well, look, there is another way of thinking about the foundation of modern states and states based on the principle of popular power, and this is constituent power. And then later on, in all the other four moments I look at, this happens again to different degrees of intensity and in order to answer to different shortcomings of contemporary understandings of sovereignty. But if you want, if there is a common theme throughout the book, throughout the five moments of the book, is that in all cases, constituent power is presented as an alternative conceptualization of popular power in opposition to sovereignty. Fantastic. How do you think the book will contribute to research in the field? And if it was up to you, what would the, the main lessons that people took away, uh, what would they be? And how would that change how people do history, political thought, and perhaps even political theory in the future? Yeah, so one thing that I really, I mean, hoping that the book will change something in the future is very ambitious. But um, one thing I like about the book and that I hope will contribute to research in the field is that throughout the five chapters, anytime I discuss how constituent power offers an alternative foundation to uh, the democratic state, um, I do so by looking at the theory. So really questions about, you know, legitimacy, who is the people, what does it mean that the people have power, but I also look at the institutional implications of these ways of thinking about popular power. So in the chapter on CES, I discuss, for example, the fact that for him, if a state is based on the principle of constituent power, there, there should be a constitutional jury, a constitutional court, but there shouldn't be a, a Senate, a second chamber. Later on in Schmidt, you have the use of constituent power to think about, to justify the use of plebiscites. With Arendt, you have the use of constituent power to justify council democracy. So there is a variety of institutions that are justified by appeal to the language of constituent power. So I hope that, um, I, so what I really hope is that, what I hope that people will pick up from the book is the interest of looking at how institutions are justified. I think this is something that both political theory and history of political thought have for a long time. I mean, have, have not done, even though this is the origins of the discipline, right? The discipline was all about, in, in late 19th century, the discipline was about thinking about what justifies different institutional structures even before late 19th century. Um, but somehow this got lost in the last few years. Um, and we have instead, so again, that's a common, that's a very well-known history, but political theory, political philosophy has focused on um, normative thinking uh, and uh, the history of political thought has mostly focused on intellectual history. Um, and really, so, but, so what I, would, what I would hope the book contributes to the field is shifting the attention back on the importance of institutions, the institutions uh, through which we make sense of our political life, that rule our uh, life together, um, and look at how ideas help or serve to justify institutions. And I mean, I'm not the only one to do this. There are, this seems to be something that um, is acquiring new interests as of late. Um, 
in, in the same series my book came out with, so Ideas in Context. Uh, Greg Conti published a book that's all about institutions. Will Salinger published a book that's all about institutions. So it's not it's not um, uh, just me, but I hope that this the, the the more books or the more reflections come out on this theme, the more the theme will become interesting and relevant again. That's great. So the books just published with CUP, but of course research never stops. So what are you working on now? What uh, what, what other uh, projects you have in the pipeline? Yeah, so that, that's a good question because it follows directly from what I was saying a minute ago. So um, the new project is going to be a project on the history of plebiscites. Uh, and the reason why I've done this is because I see this as being... So I have to admit that I have an obsession for symmetry. So uh, the justification for this new project is, a, is one that relies on symmetry in regard to my previous book. So the previous book is a book that takes one idea and looks at the variety of institutions that um, were justified in the name of this idea. Well, what I want to do now is the symmetrical opposite, meaning I want to start from one institution and look at the variety of ideas that were used to justify this one institution. So it's going to be a history of plebiscites uh, and especially a history of the understandings of democracy that crystallized around debates on plebiscites. Um, the reason why I picked plebiscites is not because I wanted to say anything about Brexit. Uh, I'm not obsessed by Brexit. Um, but it's because in the 19th and first half of the 20th century, which is really the period I work on, um, the plebiscite was a very um, ambiguous institution. Uh, and this is because it was advocated for by all by people across all the political spectrum. So you had Bonapartists, of course, using the plebiscites, that's well known. Um, but you also had socialists claiming that the referendum, as they called it, uh, or in some cases they also used, in France especially, they also used the word plebiscite. But the, the direct appeal to the people, let's say, is the only way of realizing democracy. Um, then you had... Um, the, then you had liberals advocating for the inclusion of the plebiscite, for example, in the constitution of the Third Republic in France, arguing that it is a fundamental element in a wider system of checks and balances. So it's a way of checking parliament. And especially it is a way of constraining the power of parties in parliament. Arguments in favor of plebiscites came also from uh, movements of national self-determination, so 1848, 1860, all the movements for national independence, for example, in Italy, in parts of Germany, in parts of France, they were all asking for plebiscites in order to, um, to, to demonstrate there being an independent nation. Um, and that, of course, is then used again in the final point of this new project, which will be the, the referendum, the plebiscite on, Alger on Algerian independence in the early 1960s. Uh, and then, um, yeah, so I guess what the book wants to do is to look at all these different contexts in which the plebiscite has been advocated for and try to make sense of the understanding of democracy that supported these arguments for the plebiscite. Great. That's fantastic. Thanks, Lucia. Uh, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me this morning. Okay, thank you.